Welcome to FCC 7. In this episode, which is all about data privacy, AI, and the cloud, we listen to a conversation between Ethereum's Chief Commercial Officer Florence B. Centini and Raphael Dana. Raphael is attorney at law based in Paris and has been practicing for over 15 years. He has been advising many companies around data privacy related questions and has numerous clients in the financial sector. Florence and Raphael are discussing many of the hot topics in the data privacy debate, including scope and roles in the European GDPR regulation, the consequences of the cancellation of the U.S. Privacy Shield, as well as the new cloud offerings trying to solve the data confidentiality and data sovereignty issues. But first, they start by reflecting on the apparent paradox of privacy in FCC, where we need data to perform KYC checks and enrich our AI models but at the same time, we must respect data privacy regulations. I've been working in the financial crime and compliance space for nearly uh, 20 years. And during this time, I've seen the digital transformation in financial services. And and more recently, I've witnessed a large-scale switch from on-premise packages to SaaS solutions. And, And a big challenge for SaaS companies in FCC is actually the access to personal data. So I think that everybody wonders, okay, how should I deal with data privacy when I I need personal data to do my job of financial crime detection? Yes, this is exactly something that we see. There is an interaction between, on one hand, the regulations around financial crime prevention, and on the other side, everything around privacy and uh, the data protection regulations. Sometimes these two matters come face to face because in order to be compliant with their financial crime prevention regulations, a company might feel that it is becoming in breach of data protection regulations. Yes, what you mean is that people need to understand that the privacy laws actually are superseded by national security. Well, exactly. Yes, that's a very nice way of uh, putting it. This is a trend that we've seen all over the world in the past, uh, I don't know, maybe decade or so, which is the enacting of legislation that aim to fight against, first of all, uh, the financing of criminal activities and also fighting against tax evasion and tax fraud. This is also something that goes along with more transparency in the banking sector. That's why some countries, and we all think first of Switzerland, who was guaranteeing the confidentiality around individuals and companies having uh, bank accounts in Switzerland. And step by step, by signing treatises with other countries, the transparency trend came and uh, got Switzerland to cooperate. So sometimes there's a, a form of contradiction with the rights of individuals to privacy. Of course, when you look into financial crime prevention, you need to know about someone's name, first name, last name, their contact information. You need to know information around their finances and other personal information that is going to be needed to effectively make sure that these persons are not doing anything that would be financing criminal activities or that would constitute tax evasion. So there has to be a sharing of personal information. 
You're right. And obviously, the more data we have, the more efficient the KYC process will be, huh? especially with the digital transformation and the extensive use of uh, artificial intelligence, which needs uh, millions of data points to optimize the process. So it's funny because on one side, we have our clients who are trying to limit as much as possible the number of data points that they are sending us in fear of breaching the data privacy laws. But on the other hand, and that's a paradox, if they are generating too many alerts because they are not sending us enough data, then you will have some individuals which are going to be under investigation when they should not, and their privacy is unnecessarily exposed. Many companies ask around that, where should you draw the line? Uh, is the name enough? Probably not. How many personal information do you need to aggregate to be able to tick the box uh, around, yes, I have performed my KYC check, but if my KYC goes too far, is it not uh, the other regulator, the data privacy one, that is going to tell me that I went too far? So the reasoning is rather simple. You have to respect a legal obligation around your FCC uh, checks and verifications, and this is the legal ground that you can use under the GDPR, and so that's Article 6, Section C, and that's where you close the loop. In order to comply with that legal obligation, you must process personal data, and that's perfectly fine. You know, it's interesting to note, actually, that some local or regional privacy laws may have a, a global impact. For example, uh, you've mentioned uh, GDPR, which is a European regulation. And uh, when I speak with uh, partners and clients, I really see that it's a concern all around the globe. Yes, of course. The GDPR's territorial scope is pretty broad. If you are not in Europe, but you are processing personal data of data subjects who are in the Union, then the regulation also applies to you. Although it's a European regulation, the GDPR is actually something that has to be taken into account even with non-EU corporations. And you're absolutely right because I'm, I'm discussing a lot of uh, contracts with uh, partners and clients all around the world. And uh, there is uh, some notions actually like controller and processor that are absolutely not clear. And there are lots of uh, misbeliefs uh, around the, the rules. And actually, we, we would love to, to hear from you uh, if you could define and clarify uh, these two rules. The controller is basically the person who determines the purposes and the means of a processing of personal data. So they're the one, and that's why we call them controller. They're the one who are in control. They decide, they put in place a data processing and they decide why they do it and how they do it. The processor is basically someone who is just processing personal data on behalf of the controller. So you see, the definitions are pretty straightforward. You, you just need to know them basically, but it's pretty clear. I hope it sounds clear to you. And I'm not reading exactly the way they are drafted in the text because it's easier to grasp such notions when you kind of rephrase slightly the official text. But otherwise, I mean, it's, it's in the GDPR, it's publicly available. So if anybody 
would like to read the official full-length definition, it's, it's very easy to find it. Yeah, in my experience, there is some nervousness, uh, especially when it comes to the role of a controller. And sometimes I have to deal, uh, when I negotiate contracts, with the parties that are trying to push the controller role to us. So it's extremely useful. Uh, thanks for clarifying these roles. Another notion we often hear about in discussions is uh, data sovereignty. Do you think the companies should worry about it? I would say that no company should ever worry about a notion such as data sovereignty. It's more of an idea rather than a legal notion. I know there's a trend among certain countries to create and to strengthen such notion of data sovereignty, but it's more of a way for countries to say, well, we are handling some data that are very sensitive. They can be financial data, they can be health-related data. And I think it's only fair to, to think that one country should find a way to store and protect sensitive data of their own citizens and of everything that is happening on their soil. And uh, I can understand that you might not want to have private company from another country in charge of your country's data. So it's more of a notion that does make sense, but I really see no reason to be worried about that until one specific country would put up a law that would force you. I think that's the case in Russia for some of the data, but we would need to talk to a Russian specialist. But I think some of the data around Russian citizens must be stored on servers located in Russia. So that would be uh, something that we might see becoming bigger. But as of right now, this is, this is really nothing to be afraid about. By the way, that's a great transition to the U.S. privacy shield, which is another subject that often actually pop up in, in conversation. We hear and read a lot of things on this topic since it was canceled. So, so what is the situation now? Can, can you clarify this for us? So in a nutshell, what happened is that there was a legal framework called the privacy shield that would allow companies to transfer data from the EU to the U.S., in a way that was considered as compliant with uh, European rules from the GDPR provisions. And everything was fine. You know, you would commit to respecting some rules and th that would grant to the data the same level of protection when they arrive in the US compared to the level of protection when they were back in Europe. What happened is that in July 2020, The European Court of Justice ruled that this legal framework was not valid. There were many issues around the fact that homeland security and national security legislation was depriving the data once they were in the US from having the adequate level of protection around fundamental rights of persons whose data are transferred. So this legal framework, which was used by a lot of companies, was cancelled. But at that moment, no fallback plan was proposed. So since July 2020, there is a blurry situation because we have to go back to what was in place before the privacy shield ever existed. So first of all, companies must 
minimize the data that is about to be transferred. They really need to think what is absolutely needed to be transferred to the U.S. And then you need to take additional precautions. And uh, the one that comes back often is pseudonymization or anonymization, meaning removing information that would identify individuals. But sometimes it doesn't work because sometimes if you anonymize data, you deprive them from their uh, reason uh, for being. So I'm confident that a new legal framework will be negotiated. And I know this is one of the priorities of President Biden, you know, in uh, putting this uh, data flow relationship back on track, because otherwise it is making the U.S. lose some competitive advantage, you know. If EU companies no longer want to send their data to the U.S., that's a significant loss of business. And while we are waiting for a new framework uh, to be negotiated, uh, I've noticed that the U.S. cloud players are already actually communicating on, on this topic and adapting their offering. Clearly, uh, they are looking at reassuring European uh, companies and, and showing them that uh, they, they will be protected. Just to name uh, two examples, you have uh, Microsoft Azure uh, Confidential Computing or uh, AWS Nitro Enclaves. There are initiatives actually that are going into that direction. Good point. Pseudonymization, anonymization are good. Another workaround solution is encryption, because if the data is encrypted, and I think that's what the Microsoft confidential computing thing is about. The whole principle is that the data is encrypted and uh, even the Microsoft Teams do not have access to the decryption key. So really, apart from the controller, nobody is able to decrypt the data. So that seems like an efficient way to handle that issue. Thank you, Raphael. That was very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, France.